This morning we will be looking, uh, we're beginning a new series. It's our first Sunday in the life of Joseph. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles or device to Genesis 37. We will also have a slide with the scripture, but it is helpful to have it open. So I, as I refer to it, you can jump back and forth with me. Uh, as you know, Genesis is a pretty important book. It's the beginning, the first one of, the, of all the Bible. It's a narrative. Narrative, uh, kind of like the oceans on a globe. The majority of our globe is water. The majority of the Bible is narrative. And it's a very important genre because it's true stories. And we learn a tremendous amount of theology from the narratives. If you were to try to um, take the book of Genesis and do a really simple outline, you might call it four events, the creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, or Joseph and his brothers. And so that's the portion that we're going to focus on. But of course, the entire uh, Bible, or the entire letter, uh, the book of Genesis is involved. Um, the four people, Abraham uh, marries Sarah. Eventually they have Isaac, who marries Rebekah. And then Jacob, who marries Leah, then Rachel. And then Jacob has uh, 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. And the picture of, of Genesis and why it's so important to study it is it's looking out over the future. It's starting in, in the, after the fall in Genesis 3.15. God says this in the garden, talking to both Adam, Eve, and then the serpent. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, referring to Jesus, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so the Bible's looking forward to a redeemer, a rescuer, all the way from the very beginning. Augustine said this about uh, how to kind of read the Old Testament. He says, the New Testament is in the old, concealed. The Old Testament is in the new, revealed. So we now have lenses to see the Old Testament, to understand how Jesus is indeed revealed through this story of Joseph and others. And that's what we are going to do. Uh, I don't know if you've seen or studied or read the book of, I don't know why I said seen. I guess there is a Joseph movie. Uh, but I'm going to tell you the ending. He, uh, he becomes awesome. He protects everybody. So that's the ending. So I'm sorry. He wins, okay? What ha actually happens is he, he ends up ruling over Egypt. And he's second in command only to Pharaoh. And it's during a time of famine, and you probably know the story. His brothers and the entire, all of Jacob's family have to come to him, not realizing who he is, and, and to beg for the food that he saved because of how God worked in him. And there's this beautiful ending scene that we'll wait to actually dive into for till the end of the series. But just to kind of show where we're going, uh, Joseph says this to his brothers in the very last chapter, Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you... You meant evil against me. Remember, we'll learn next week that they are the ones who put him in harm's way and led to his, his captivity and, and horrible life, really. Uh, they did it to be evil. So he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And, of course, the full picture is Jesus, that he would rescue his people. We know that from that beginning at the end of Genesis, we have the book of Exodus, where the people of Israel have grown. They come through the Red Sea. 
They go into Canaan and Joshua, and the New Testament or the Old Testament continues through David and the prophets, eventually to Jesus, right? And so we have this whole picture, this whole narrative. And now here's the reason I give you that before we read the text and move into it, is we don't just come to this because these are amazing heroes. In fact, these people are not much to be emulated. Like you don't see these sons of Jacob and think, I want to be like that guy. Maybe Joseph is the only one. Nonetheless, we learn from them because we too are living out this story. We're part of this meta narrative, this large story. And the questions that we need to be asking are, can we see the Lord? Can we follow him in these times? Or are we like these brothers, so, so narrow focused that we miss these larger pictures? So let's read it together and then we'll dive in. We're going to just simply look at the first 11 verses of the Joseph story, starting in chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you are sovereign, that you are uh, not only omnipresent, omnipotent, but all-powerful, and you are over this story. And Lord, we praise you that you have saw fit to graft us into this family, into this family of Christians of your church, through the power of your son and through his blood. But Lord, we also see in these brothers and in Joseph and his dad, many struggles that we have, and this story is challenging. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd help us to understand what you would have us understand this morning for your glory. Amen. Um, recently I was looking up, uh, and really for the purpose of this illustration, uh, antiquated medical procedures. Have you ever, you've heard of some of these antiquated, you know, you, these procedures that you hear about and you're like, they thought that would work. The most obvious, the most popular that I've, I've heard, you know, bloodletting. 
you uh, make a patient bleed. I believe that's how George Washington, I remember in the Chernow biography, I think they did some bloodletting for him, which might have contributed to his demise earlier than it could have would have been. Uh, so don't do that. The next one I think is more obvious. Uh, don't drill holes in skulls. That was a, an old ritual, an old method. Like, hey, this might help your headache, which I would think that would make it worse. Um, but here are some that I was not as familiar with. Hot iron to treat hemorrhoids. Don't try this at home. Malaria to treat syphilis. I mean, like, really? You thought that was a good idea? The last thought, just again, sorry for the uh, graphicness, but urine to whiten teeth. You know what? I don't, I'm not so sure they understood the concept. Why do I bring these up? Because in our modern era, especially if you're a doctor, if you walked into a setting practicing one of these procedures or others like them, your immediate thought would be, don't, don't you understand this is not going to work? Which is how you feel when you read the book of Genesis. Like over and over with the stories in Genesis, you just want to say like, Abraham, don't sell your wife to the king, don't, or don't give her as your sister. You just read over and over what not to do. And even, even as we get to the Joseph story, it's surrounded by dysfunction and problems within the family. Um, Reuben, uh, I have to always watch my language, even in the Bible, but Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, um, the concubine slash wife of Jacob. Uh, Judah and Tamar is the next chapter, uh, the, the, the defiling of Dinah and Judah's retribution and, the, and the, or excuse me, the children's, the sons of Leah going after the entire town and massacring them. I mean, there's a lot of dysfunction where you're just kind of like, maybe that's not going to work. Let me come to our passage here. And you know the setup that in the next section, they're going to actually act on their envy, the brothers, and they're going to kidnap Joseph, attack him, and, and sell him off. So, again, like, come on, guys. It's probably not a good idea. Don't you see that your methods aren't working? But yet we get the benefit of thousands of years of removal. We get the benefit of the New Testament. We have these new lenses. And so we can see these outdated methods. But I want to say I think many of us actually lean in with this passage and agree with the brothers. I mean, there is a little bit of a tendency to kind of to lean in and go, okay, maybe not kidnap, maybe not like sell off Joseph, but come on, like look how he's acting, you know? He's given the false report, he's telling you these dreams. And I want to press in on that in our conversation this morning, because what we're going to see is these are actually outdated methods, or in our better vernacular, the flesh. These brothers are operating out of the flesh, out of sin. And I think we relate to them in that we often come to the problems of our daily lives with a narrow view. We don't see the long trajectory of Scripture. We're, we're so focused on what's in front of us that we make these decisions that later someone reading the story might say, don't you see? Like, can't you tell what you're doing? You're repeating that. So let's come to Scripture and come to this passage and say, Jesus, will you show us how knowing the long trajectory of your plan can free us in the present to live rightly like Joseph does versus following the, the brother's paths. So I'm just going to walk through, we're going to do it a little differently. It's a narrative. We're going to walk through these events. There's really the three quick events of kind of a setup 
and this report that he gives, and then the dreams. So I want to walk through those, a first pass through those, and then a second pass, and then we'll apply it, okay? So here's the background, the general setup. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Now at that point, with his brothers, probably means all of the brothers. But the next sentence says, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, I don't typically want to bore you with details, but these are, here's some important things. Jacob goes to Laban to marry Rachel, and after seven years of service, is tricked into marrying Leah. And Leah has six sons with uh, Jacob. Rachel, who Jacob also finally gets to marry, is barren. And in her barrenness, she does what you see in the Old Testament often. She gives her, her um, helpmate, her uh, maiden, to, uh, to Jacob to be a concubine or even a wife. And her name was Bilhah. And through Bilhah, you have Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah, who is apparently barren, i.e. Jacob's like kind of like not interested anymore, um, is like, well, I know, I'll send my uh, maid servant to your house, and, it's, and that's um, Zilpah. So she gets in on the act, and now they have Gad and Asher. So you have four women, four moms involved, four wives, and actually they are wives. It's interesting how the word goes back and forth, but here in Genesis 37, Moses, the author of Genesis, lets us know very clearly these are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. They're not Leah's. They're not Rachel's. These are the, these women. That's just an interesting side. So Leah had Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar and Zebulun. Zilpah had Gad and Asher, and Bilhah had Dan and Naphtali. But then Rachel is able to finally birth a son, and that's Joseph. And then her second son, whom she dies having, is Benjamin. That's your 12 tribes. Now, that's the setup, but notice how when you come to this passage, you have Joseph, Bilhah, and Zilpah's children and, and this bad report. What that means is you kind of have like tribalization, don't you? You have Leah's kids, the six, are somewhere else, and you have this story kind of building here. And the question before us that is, is if there, there's two sides to, is what is this bad report? Like we read it in the English, and it's very tempting to just say, oh, he's gossiping, he's slandering. That's one option. One option of the bad report that many commentators support is that Joseph is kind of tattletelling, if you will. That's, and iron interestingly, that's kind of a later trend in commentaries. Um, so let's hold on to that for a minute. It's possible that he's doing that. But then in addition to that, you have Jacob giving Joseph this coat of many colors. Now, interestingly, when you dive into the Hebrew there, and, and the, it doesn't necessarily mean a beautiful coat like we've been told by Andrew Lloyd Webber and others. It, it's actually, though it's probably colorful, it's signifying a position of authority uh, and, and favor. So again, more reason for the brothers to be angry. And then we have these dreams. Joseph goes in and tells them these dreams, right? He comes in, and basically the way it reads at first blush is, one day, someday, I'm going to be somebody, and you're not. 
that's the way they hear it. And so I think as the reader as of any narrative, you kind of figure, who do you identify with? And my guess is most of us in verses 1 to 11 aren't super drawn to Joseph at this point. There's a tendency to be like, okay, um, Jacob, some problems. The brothers, some huge problems. But Joseph, I just, I think it's, who are you going to go with? Who are you drawn to? Who do you, who do you pull for, you know? Is this sort of one of those movies that you pull for the bad guys? Well, I want to just respond to this, and then we'll come back to what I think is actually happening. And I'm going to respond by saying this. Have you seen the movie The Sixth Sense? I've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into the movie, but I'll just hint at the fact that Bruce Willis, we think the whole movie is a detective or a counselor or a psychiatrist with this little boy who, I see dead people. And uh, in the end, what you find out is he's actually not alive. Okay, did I just ruin the movie for you? Who said yeah? Okay, yeah, but I've given you like 25 years. You've seen the movie, by the way. I know you. Uh, I've also told you one of my favorite comedians, Nate Bregazzi, a clean comedian, and you can actually watch him and say, wow, Pastor Ryan likes this comedian. Uh, he says, you know, it's interesting because in that movie, the, you see the husband and the wife together all the time, and you just assume they aren't speaking. And he said, this is how committed we are to, like, silent treatments in marriages from all of us as viewers. We're just like, yeah, that's perfectly normal. That makes sense that in an entire movie they're not talking. When in reality we should be like, why are they not speaking? Oh, she doesn't actually see him. He's there, but he's not. Okay. Why do I bring those up? We come through this text, and I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe the Bible is in its ingenious way drawing us in to ask the question that I titled uh, the sermon, to feel the offense of righteousness. Righteousness feels offensive. Why do I say that? I'm going to now go back to those events in the way I believe they uh, are meant to be seen. First of all, the bad report. The word bad report has the two options. One, the report is untruthful. It's wrong. It's slander. But the other meaning of that word is the report itself is fine. It's just what you're telling in the report is so bad. Those are your options. And for those that want to say it's like slander and he's kind of being a tattletale, the problem is the text never blames the report for the brother's hatred. It's very clear. They don't like Joseph because of Jacob's relationship to him and Jacob's favoritism. In fact, the bad report never comes back up again. Why is it here? I believe the bad report helps Joseph recognize that Jacob, helps Jacob recognize that Joseph is for him. So here we are. Joseph is 17. If you know the story, Joseph's going to go to Potiphar's house and everything he touches turns to gold. He's going to go to prison again, but in Egypt this time, touches, everything touches turns to gold. He's going to go to Egypt. Everything he touches turns to gold. We have no reason to believe that when he's 17, it's not already happening. He is an employee of his dad's, and I believe he's having success. And in addition to that, he comes across evil intent and reports it to his father, and his father recognizes that he actually loves him, serves him, and longs for good. That's actually how Calvin takes it. That's how Matthew Henry takes it. It's not until you get to later commentaries that say, ah, I think that he's being a tattletale. And I think that speaks to our culture. I think we struggle in our modern culture with loyalty, with righteousness. So what about these dreams? 
these dreams, if this is true, are uh, very interesting. In fact, I think many modern uh, expositors don't know what to do with it because, again, they found, sound very arrogant. The first dream, as you know, he says there are these sheaves in the field, and, uh, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. I, pic- I picture like a Disney movie or something. And your sheaves bowed down and gathered around. And his brothers were even more angry. And you want to go, hey, like Joseph, um, quick note to self, maybe don't tell the next dream, <laughs> you know, like. But he does. He goes right back in. Has another dream. We don't know how much later. This time his father is in, in the audience. And at this point, it's, there's a sun, a moon, 11 stars bowing down to me. Now it's Joseph's at the middle. How do we make sense of that if Joseph's the good guy? Well, first of all, we need to remember a couple of things. Number one, in this culture, in this time period, if you had a dream, and, and like this is true of a- ancient cultures who are almost all somewhat God-fearing of some kind, it was a message from God, and you were to tell your dream. It was not to be kept in. That's a very modern thought that I would have just kept that to myself. Like, not, not then. And especially because Joseph follows Yahweh. And his belief would have been rightly that God put that dream in his brain to be told. And here's the thing. Remember that down the road in that story, there's going to be a famine all the food's going to be gone, and you're going to need somebody to provide food. Maybe God's giving you, like, information that's useful. Have some humility. Like, lean in and go, what's going on? But they don't. So is Joseph being arrogant? I mean, it can sound that way, but I would challenge us to say, sometimes you have to step out, even if it makes you look that way, to preach the truth, to tell the truth. Think of, like, whistleblowers and... Uh, like at Enron. Remember Enron? How long has that been? Goodness, that feels like yesterday, doesn't it? Probably 30 years ago or something. I don't know. But remember there are whistleblowers at each of these moments, and, and when they blow the whistle, it's sort of like you're hated, but then when you see the evil and all the problems, you go, okay, you did a good thing. So the question for me, for all of us is this. Do we love righteousness? Do we want God's truth to be known? So what's missing in, this, in these discussions? Well, what's missing is um, these brothers know something that maybe we don't know, and that is this. God, when he chose Abraham, chose Abraham over the other sons of Paran. When God chooses Isaac, it's Isaac over Ishmael. When God chooses Jacob, it's Jacob over Esau. And when we come to the sons of Jacob, there are 12. And in chapter 35, verse 11, here's what God says. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. For the first time, the lineage is not just one child, one son. It's all of them. And that would have been told to them. And so this realization that Blessing is coming for all of us and through all of us would have been embraced and understood if they lived by faith. And the actual Hebrew word there for company in 3511, Genesis, is kahal, which in the Greek is often translated as ecclesia. 
and it means coming from you, Jacob, and these 12 sons, is a church. It's a worshiping entity. It's a community that will come out of you that will bring glory and honor to God and will, um, will serve this future king, Jesus, that we saw prophesied from Genesis 3. So, is Joseph's, are his dreams self-centered? Well, we know the story. He goes into incredible hardship. He goes through years and years of, of um, imprisonment before he's ever in the position. And then when he gets in the position in Egypt, it's not glorious. It's hard work to oversee everything. But here's what's fascinating. In Genesis 49, 8, uh, jo- Jacob is now pronouncing all the blessings on his children. And he comes to a son whose name is Judah, and he says this, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Like, did you, did you hear that? Judah, not Joseph. So everyone's so mad at Joseph for these dreams. But Judah gets this pronouncing that the sons, are, the brothers will bow down before his offspring and then verse 9 of 40, uh, chapter 49 says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. And in Revelation 5, we hear this, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll of the seven seals. So though all the 12 brothers will become tribes, and though we are all blessed by the tribes of Israel The lineage of Judah is the one where the lion of Judah comes. That is Jesus. So we come back to these dreams and we realize, wait a minute, like whatever's happening isn't the way those brothers felt about it. And so here we are hearing those dreams and going, we can't comprehend how that was a good idea. I even remember other Bible studies saying, hey, maybe God didn't want Joseph to tell that dream. Or maybe, you know, there's all these question marks about why. And the answer is, He was supposed to tell the dream, and they were supposed to use the wisdom they had to interpret the dream, at least, or at least trust God in the giving of the dream. Let's look at the last verse of our passage this morning. Chapter 37, verse 11 says this. After that second dream, here's what the writer Moses tells us. And his brothers were jealous of him. Okay? They believed it. They believed there was something to it. And listen to what the next line says. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, Jacob had just told, um, he had just rebuked Joseph for having these dreams and telling everybody. And then he's like in a duplicitous moment like, hmm. And he kind of realizes there's something to these dreams. I believe that there was enough information and enough knowledge for them to lean in and go, God is doing something profound through Joseph. And I love that line, kept the saying in mind. Have you heard that before? Isn't it Mary who, when the shepherds come to report what the angels have said, she stores all of these things in mind. And then 12 years later, when Jesus is found in in the temple and they've frantically been searching for him, and he says, how could I be anywhere else but my father's house? Mary takes these, this information and keeps it in mind. It's a, such a beautiful tie-in. Remember the phrase, the New Testament is in the old concealed, 
the Old Testament is in the New revealed, that what we see in Joseph is a clear picture of what we see in Jesus. That Jesus loses his robe when he comes to earth. And we know that Jesus is killed by jealous brothers. While on the cross, he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. And through his death, just like we saw in Genesis 50, Jesus has brought life to many. So we actually come to the Joseph story, even in this first passage, and say, this is a picture of righteousness. So where are you with that? I want to draw our attention to a place in, in the New Testament that kind of dovetails nicely with what we hear in chapter 50, where, where we hear what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In Romans 8, and we've talked about this several times recently, Paul says this in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So here's the question. Why are we uncomfortable with Joseph's righteousness? Why are so many uncomfortable with Jesus' righteousness? And the answer is this, because when we step out in faith, in righteousness, it creates a problem. It creates a problem. And so in chapter 8, as Paul has just explained how sin uh, can grip his own heart in chapter 7, he says in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then toward the bottom of that passage, he says the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. That does not suggest that you have to suffer to be a Christian. That suggests that if you are a Christian and Christ dwells in you, you are going to see the world differently and you're going to find yourself stepping into these operating rooms where they're drilling holes into skulls or they're letting out blood or they're taking a hot iron for hemorrhoids and you're going to go, stop! And the world's going to look at you and go, what? This is how we do it here. And you're going to say, but this doesn't work. This is not how it was designed. Don't you see? And there will be suffering in that process. See, I'm afraid that when the power structures that arise in our lives, like that of the sons of Jacob, we find like the pecking order. Okay, there's Leah's kids and there are the concubine kids and we're kind of over here. How do I fit in? That's the game of the world. That's the game of junior high. And that's the game that so many of us long to play. And it will kill you. You might as well start drilling holes in your head. The gospel frees us to say, stop. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We are set free, which I believe Joseph emulates in the Old Testament. We now can name truth. We can be truth tellers. We can love people well, but it's going to hurt. It took our Savior and put him on a cross. It's going to hurt. Now, why would I bring such a negative, negative topic to this group today? Do we not live in a world that is in transition? I mean, yesterday in one of the many commercials during college football, I think we were streaming something and it popped on. Meredith, you probably had this one memorized. Uh, one of the opening lines just said, in such crazy times, and I don't even know what they said next. 
They went on to sell their things. And I thought, even advertisers can just start commercials with the line in crazy times like these. Like, can we all agree it's nuts? In fact, I bet there are some of you that when I read that list of medical treatments, you might have been like, that could actually work with COVID. I mean, I don't know. Like, it, you know, it won't. <laughs> this is, <laughs> these are all, be- yet we do that with the rest of our lives as well. We are so prone to ignore the, pro- the trajectory of Scripture, that Jesus came to save a people. And if we are in Christ, he has rescued us. And that doesn't just mean that one day, someday we're in heaven. It does mean that, but it means that presently we represent him, we are identified with him, and we will face hardship. Can I invite you to face a little hardship? I don't mean causing arguments just to cause arguments. I don't mean being harsh on social media just to do that. But I mean standing up for the gospel when it's unpopular. Speaking up when evil is around. Stepping on the neck of evil when it's trying to win for the glory of Christ. That is our calling as Christians. And I hope that we will all recognize that we can, though, be tempted to see what Joseph is doing as a little bit out there, let us recognize what he was doing was knowingly being very unpopular for the sake of righteousness. And Christ has invited us in through the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have called us, your children, into your church, your ecclesia, that we are now part of the recipients of that promise to Jacob in Genesis 35. We, because of you, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, are engrafted into your people, filled with your spirit, uncondemnable. We have nothing to fear. Lord, forgive us for knowing enough about church history to know that oftentimes Christians face persecution. Forgive us for thinking that is passe. Forgive us for thinking that it's going to be easy from here on out. It's not. Lord, we don't call to be martyrs for no reason, but I do call and ask that your spirit would help us move toward righteousness and equally hate evil wherever it exists in our world and that we would be effective agents for your gospel, for your glory. Amen.